Hi folks, Jack Spierko here with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is March 11, 2015, and this is episode 1532 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, today we're going to talk about what some people call peak food. I went ahead and used the term, though I don't know that it's really the proper term for the dangers in the food supply going forward into our future. And to be clear, I if you're new to this show, I don't sell info marketing crap. I'm not telling you 21 things to hoard or some other bullshit nonsense. And I'm not talking about tomorrow morning or even next year. I am talking about the real um, looming specter of our future as the world's population continues to grow Basically, if you, uh, as a survivalist, if you occasionally want to hear a little gloom and doom, you're going to hear some today. Um, but not made-up, phony, BS, gloom and doom. You're going to hear real shit. You're going to hear, hear some real facts about where we're headed uh, and why the food issue is a bigger issue than, let's say, oil and water and money and all these other things that people freak out about. Uh, not that those things aren't a problem, but they all end up in the stomach. They all end up in the stomach sooner or later, or let's say maybe they don't end up in the stomach. Before I get to that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. And sponsor of the day number one today is Backwoods Home Magazine, the easiest sponsor I've ever had to sponsor. Why? Because I subscribed to them in 1994, and I'm still a subscriber today, and today is 2015. That's 21 years. And they've been a sponsor for like three of those years, so... It's clearly not that I'm a subscriber because they're a sponsor. I'm a subscriber because I love what they do. If you want to know why, get over to BackwoodsHome.com. Check out their magazine, their online articles, their forum, and everything else. And remember, if you're going to subscribe, and I think you should, if you're a member of the Support Brigade, they have a special deal for you. You'll find in the benefits section of your member Support Brigade area. Next up today, KnifeKits.com. These were an easy, pe- you know, easy group to vet. Uh, my sponsors have to be vetted by my forum moderators. That's how it works. I can't take a sponsor until they say okay. And these guys are easy because the blade smithing, knife making world is a, is a, is a huge but yet small community. There's forums and boards everywhere. So all they had to do to check these guys out was just go to all the blade forums and what have you and check out their reputation, which was stellar. So we brought them on. That was over four years ago. They've been a loyal sponsor ever since. Check them out today and learn how to make a knife. And if you're thinking that's too complicated, they can make they can, you know, they can give you raw materials, really exotic stuff. I I have a nice knife made with uh, mammoth tusk handles on it that Patrick Rorman from MT Knives made me. We got the mammoth tusk from uh, from from KnifeKits.com. But you can also get a book or a DVD, a couple bucks worth of uh, uh, scale material for the handles and a kit. And uh, you can you know start making knives for fifty, sixty bucks at the most. At the most, that's buying the DVD and book to go with it. Um, they have kits that are, you know, sub $15. You can make really cool knives out of them. I mean, they're not top-end customs, but it gets you started. It's got everything from, again, the most basic to the most advanced. Check them out today, knifekits.com, and they do give you a discount if you're an MSB member. On that note, if you're not an MSB member, you should be. Why? Well, you get discounts, stuff you're probably buying anyway, so much so that your membership will largely pay for itself. And 
in getting a discount program that pays for itself and many people find profitable. You'll get a bunch of other great information as well, and you'll help support the show. It's kind of a win-win-win. That's how I build business models. So consider joining the day. If you're a military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, or a first responder like an EMT, paramedic, or firefighter, it, it gets even better because I'll give you a discount if you let me know that before, not after you join. Send me an email with uh, service discount TSPC in the subject line, and uh, tell me about your service in one or two sentences in the body of the email, and you send that email to jack at survivalpodcast.com. For everybody else that wants to send me email for any reason, uh, jack at survivalpodcast.com is the email. There's no secret super squirrel email. TSPC needs to be in the subject line to make sure it survives the attack of the spam monster. And for your benefit, as brief as possible... If you can't sum up what you have to say in two sentences, you probably haven't thought about it enough. Anyway, that'll get through the filter, uh, my mental filter, the two-sentence formula. You can even put details, several returns below the two sentences to make it easy on me to know what you're telling me about. Uh, this is not something like, hey, this is the way you do it if you want to play ball with Jack. This is like, okay, I have to go through a thousand emails today, therefore... Um, I don't have time to spend more than about 10 seconds to figure out if an email is worth reading or not. And if I'm going to read it, I don't have more than about one to two minutes or I'm going to run out of hours in the day. That's just how it works. Anyway, with that, let us take a look at the year that was the episode. This is like another one of these years. With every single one of these is so deep and rich with lessons to teach. The first one is a good liberal now, a mean liberal later. The next one is fewer first fruits for Rome and tax freedom day. And the last one is Pizarro and the Fallacy of the Noble Savage. Man, if you don't usually go read the other uh, segments of the history segment on the TSP Wiki, do so today, the 1532 Wiki page. Man, there is so much to learn here. So I'm just going to read the first one because they're all, I would call them equally valuable in lesson. But a good liberal now, a mean liberal later. Niccolo Machiavelli has been dead for five years now, but his famous book, The Prince, is finally published this year. The point of the book was to integrate Niccolo to the ruler of Florence. It is unknown if the prince ever received a copy, and Niccolo's death there seemed no point now. But someone was impressed enough to get the book published. It will remain a classic into modern day, but like many great books in the modern day, it will be quoted more than read. My take by Alex Shrug, who puts these together for us at the TSP Wiki. I've read three books that are quoted by smart people who have apparently never read them. Uncle Tom's Cabin, Democracy in America, and The Prince. The, the Prince brings many uh, brings to light many uncomfortable political truths. For example, being a good liberal requires self-effacing, anonymous, do-gooding on behalf of the people. As a religious ideal, it can work because God knows what you're doing without having to see it on the news. But in the secular word, government do-gooders must be public, requiring taxes for the sake of the greater good. When the money runs out, the government must be mean for the sake of the greater good. In Germany, during World War II, the government could no longer write the check for social services. So the sick and elderly were painlessly gassed as a cost-saving measure. In the 1500s, Niccolo Machiavelli predicted the government do-gooding would go wrong. Anyone who's read the book has realized that it's not state, it was, and not started it. Anyone who had read the book would have realized it and not started it in the first place. Quote, Those who will be kind when they should be cruel will one day be cruel when they should be kind. Probably from Midrash. Um, yeah. See, this is what I'm 
been trying to get across to people for years now. Um, when government decides to intervene in socio-political relationships of individuals, it will inherently always create an imbalance, and sooner or later there will be an accounting of the imbalance. And it always ends the same way, with death and bloodshed and guns. And sometimes the death is really obvious and really horrific, and people seem to sort of get a lesson in reality for a while. You know, like gassing old people because they're inconvenient. But many times the death is a miserable existence. A miserable existence that results in the elderly having very little and living the last of their lives in a point of scarcity. Where if we actually created what I would call collective wealth, but collective tribal and familial wealth, it should be that the oldest among us are in the least in need of assistance from government, or from anybody for that matter. And they should be leaving behind something that's a legacy for their tribes and for their families to continue to build on. Ask yourself, why in the wealthiest nation in, in the world it is the case that we now have children who have less than their parents? I'm not talking about material. I'm talking about true, innate wealth, happiness, freedom, liberty, the ability to feed ourselves. Shouldn't it be that if our great-grandparents... We're actually most concerned about us. And somewhere along the chain, our grandparents, our parents, us, and our children, we didn't lose sight of that, that these generations today should be in a world filled with the resources they need to live abundantly. It actually should be. It's really not that hard. Instead, we're looking down the barrel of a different kind of gun, a gun that says, your stomach may be empty in the future. That's what we're going to talk about today. Um... I want to do something I don't normally do. I usually make my show notes very brief. Uh, today's show notes, right up to the point where it says the, you know, the outline bullet points, is, is written a lot like an article. And I almost never script anything. And it's actually a lot harder for me to read something that's somewhat scripted when my voice is strained. And you can hear that it, it really still is. I should have just taken this week off uh, to recover, at least two, three days. Um, but I, I, I really believe that you know this is my calling so that's why I'm doing these shows I got an interview as soon as I'm done with this show um, where I'll probably let the guest hopefully do more talking than I do I hopefully this won't be one of those guests where you have to uh, to prod them to get them to talk right uh, but anyway so when I when I look at today's outline I realize I have to read it to you I think that there's a reason that it ended up being written like an article and it's because it's what needs to be said and understood about this issue and uh, the title of today's show, again, is Peak Food is the Real Long Slow Emergency. Peak oil? Whatever. There's a lot of oil and gas, and we are rapidly figuring out more and more alternative energy strategies. It isn't that it is not a problem. It just isn't the big-ass mastodon in the room. What? You say mastodons are extinct? Good point. It, it was mine as well. Peak water? Yes, yes, this too is a problem, but there are literally thousands of solutions to this problem. No matter how moronic current policies are, get into a real pinch and known solutions exist. We can indeed fix this. It isn't even really that hard. Peak money. Wow, if that's a problem, you don't understand money. It's created from thin air. It's real versus phony value backing is from the economy. 
in which it circles. Money we indeed can create, as it is a symbol for energy versus the underlying energy itself. Peak industrial production? Nope. That isn't the big one either. Hungry people will indeed work, wait for it, food, because yes, that is where we are going next. The reality is we have more crap than we need. People are good at building stuff, and no, this one alone will not end civilization. Now, look, if any of those four are your pet peaks, relax your crack and stop yelling at the screen. I absolutely acknowledge those things are areas of concern. Problems that can be solved, but problems that will cause massive harm in the time it takes to fix them. Just none in and of themselves lead to the cliff that could be the 6X extinction event. And I'm not going to describe 6X for you right now. You can, you can read the link that's there if you want to in the show notes. No, the reality is we are running low on many resources, but they all lead to one place. The dinner table. Just realize that name might end up being pretty accurate, as many may have to skip breakfast and lunch, not so far into the future. Take each of these other problems and look how quickly it harms an already stressed food supply. Unlike the people in idiocracy, we still know plants need water, not brondo, and well, you need water to make brondo anyway. Oil? How about this? If you are an American right now, it takes 400 gallons of fossil fuels to feed you every year. Note, that doesn't include the little bits of gas you put in your Prius to go to Whole Foods or what is burned to keep your fridge nice and cold. Just the energy that gets to the food to the point where you buy it. Can we do some basic math, folks? No common core needed. Gasoline has about 31,000 calories per gallon. Multiply it by 400 and you get what? 12,400,000 calories of energy to feed you. Now leave aside what the average person should eat. The average per person, uh, per person calories consumed in the U.S. is about 2,800 calories. And I have a link to back that number up. Multiply that by 365 with fatties, skinnies, and regulars averaged out, and that is 1.022 million. That means 12 million calories are being used to provide you with about 1 million. Did you get that? What? You say the food production energy ratio isn't that bad? You are correct, of course, but we export a lot of grain, low-quality food to the rest of the world that doesn't eat as good as we do. Those are the numbers to feed Americans the amount of food we are currently using. Money? Again, we can fix that because it is only an illusion. But what a powerful illusion it is. When money is screwed up, so is banking, financing, industry, etc. In the end, though, what hurts you isn't going, is it not going to a job or even living in a shelter? It is not having food in your belly. As this one also covers industrial production, we will let that one go for now. Again, it isn't that these are not problems. It is they all contribute to the problem of peak food. And brothers and sisters, peak food has its own problems. So, you know, I, I really think what we need to understand is all of our biggest fears, like money and oil and everything I just went through, and all the other things you can come up with, water, food, uh Peak phosphorus, which leads right to food, uh, peak natural gas, peak this, peak that, uh, this running out, that running out, resources, uh, desertification, all of these things. What we're doing is we're looking at scratches. And the solutions of mankind up till now have been to put a little neosporin on the, on the, on the scratch 
and put a band-aid over it. And underneath the scratch is a systemic infection. And imagine now that you're looking at a person with band-aids all over both of their arms. They have a little scratch here and a little scratch there, maybe one on their knee, a little scrape, little place where they dug behind their ear and they got a little little one of them little round band-aids back there. And none of the scratches in of themselves look that bad, but you think this guy's pretty scraped up, but you know, it looks like we're doing the right things. Now, underneath the flesh and in the flesh and underneath the skin is a metastasizing infection. And that infection is not just under the scratch on the right wrist and then the the the, the left forearm and behind the ear. The infection is a pulsating um, web of pus that just is erupting and coming out of these different little scratches and scrapes. That's the total system we're in today. That's why some people legitimately make a case that we could be looking at already being part of what they call 6X or the sixth great extinction. And it seems, you know, it's one of those things, oh, it's alarmist law. This must be to get our tax dollars. Look, guys, I, I, I don't think tax dollars fix this. I really don't. But let me just give you some numbers of threatened species. This leaves out what's already gone extinct. Of birds, 13% are threatened with extinction right now. Of mammals, 25% of, and this is off a study that I'll have a link to for you guys. Um, these are just off of 52,000 species. Right, there's there's way more than 52,000 species, just insects. So this is just what was assessed. Out of mammals, 25% of the mammals assessed in this study are threatened. Of amphibians, frogs, which are the canary and the coal mine guys, 41%. Um, when we go into the tip of the vast unknown on this infographic, where we just like we're admitting we have no idea how many species of this shit there is but of what we know uh 700 and uh, oh, sorry 29% of reptiles 23% of fish 5% of mollusks 5% of all flowering plants 3% of non-flowering plants 3% of crustaceans 6% of other other 6 tenths of a percent of other that's a guess They're including fungi in there. That number's way low. I'll tell you about that in a second. Insects, three-tenths of a percent. Only three-tenths of a percent of insects are, in fact, in danger of extinction. But the reality is, we don't know. We have no idea how many species of insects there are, let alone what they all do. It's the arachnids that seem to be doing pretty well. Um, only two-hundredths of one percent. Already gone. Already gone. Species known to be extinct or extinct in the wild since 1500. 327 species of mollusks. 100, these aren't threatened. These are gone. They're gone. 136 species of birds. 110 flowering plants. 79 mammals. 68 fish. 60 insects. Uh, 39 amphibians. 22 reptiles. 12 crustaceans. 10 non-flowering plants. Two others. Again, with a picture of a mushroom, and I don't really think they understand that at all. And no known arachnid extinctions. You know, they always say that the Earth would be repopulated by cockroaches, but when I look at that, I wonder if it would be scorpions and spiders. So, when we look at it that way, we realize that you can't isolate life. When you see a significant portion of all life just disappearing. 
And regardless of why you think that is, you, you have to kind of look at it as going, this is systemic. And, and some people might try to make the case, well, they probably have that many creatures disappearing throughout evolutionary history all the time. And no, 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 they don't. Um, extinctions of species um, are not very common unless they're in mass extinctions or isolated events. They don't usually happen in this kind of large number at the same time, yet not everything being wiped out. And when you look at the records of the five previous extinctions, this type of drop-off preceded them. The one thing I know that could really cause us problems is if we can't eat, and all of these things are interlinked. I'll tell you a little story I learned in California, and I won't get this all right because there was way too much information coming in my head from uh, fungi researcher Paul Stammons at one time for me to remember everything this, this brilliant man said. But he was talking about how there are certain trees that the bears come in and the bears scratch the trees. And then the trees get a fungus and the trees die. And then that means it's dangerous to the other trees. So the forestry people, as soon as they see the bear scratch, they cut the tree down. And all of a sudden the bears are just not coming into the forest as much anymore and the bees are in decline and everybody's trying to figure this out. And What they had found out is that there were certain trees the bears would scratch that would impart a certain fungus and yes, that would kill the tree. But the bears had some particular reason that they preferred this tree. And again, I can't remember exactly what it was, but because they were going into the forest to scratch the trees, they would often bring you know carcasses of salmon they had fished with them. And they would leave whatever they didn't eat in there. And that was this incredible phosphorus enrichment to the forest. And yes, the tree would die, but the tree, the fungus that would be considered a, a, a malevolent fungus, because it killed the tree, that let the tree die, there were these very beneficial fungi that, that came. And the fungus itself that we saw as bad, because it killed the tree, actually has a, a, a certain effect on a creature called the virolomite. It kills dead. And when the tree was scratched and the sap was coming out, the honeybees would go to the tree and get some of this mycelium from this fungus on them, along with like five other mycelium varieties, and they would go back and they would basically inoculate their hive, which was usually like a dead hole in a tree anyway, so that tree's toast in the future. And only if it's a certain species does this fungus even really hurt it. So there wasn't really a problem there. But with this fungi active in the hives and actually ending up in the honey and the bees consuming it, it was death for many of the pests that infected the bees. But we know better and we cut the tree down. So none of that happens. Well, I don't know if you've checked, but most of the fruits and many of the fruiting vegetables, as we would call them, require those little guys to fly around and do the job for us, right? The, the huge amounts of food that come out of California couldn't happen without the bees. That's why people are afraid of colony collapse disorder. Well, here's what starts to happen. These bees get a little bit sick, and they're out and about doing their thing, and they start to die. Like They, they, they say colony collapse disorder, they don't all die. Well, some of them die. Well, too many of the bees that are in the worker stage, they're, they're not in the nurse stage, and they're not in the guard bee stage. See, so the guard bee stays back at the nest. It's got a, like a week and a half to live. It's all tore up, wore out after five weeks of work. Doesn't give a shit anymore. Doesn't care if it stings you. That's why they have guard bees, because they're the ones that are like, they're like the 89-year-old man 
you know, half half infected with dementia and half infected with uh, some kind of cancer that knows he's got about a month to live. If you piss him off, he'll just shoot you, right? So the guard bees are hanging out, and the nurse bees are taking care of the brood, and the worker bees are doing all the work. Well, as the as the age of the bee declines, and there's less bees that make it to the guard bee stage, and there's less bees that make it to that make it through the worker stage. The nurse bees go, oh shit, there's no food. So we're going to get off, off our asses and we're going to go out and we're going to get the food. Okay? Well, when that happens, then who's going to take care of the babies? And when the babies start getting infected with the varroa mites, because the mycelium aren't there, on top of the fact that the, the nurse bees aren't there to keep them all cleaned off, they get infected and they die. So what happens is the hive goes into a state where the brood is not actually not coming up anymore, and the hive has no choice but to swarm away and try to try to migrate and recolonize. And that's what's actually causing colony collapse disorder. Some of you guys sent me emails about a patent on mycelium that may save the bees without chemicals, and the guy behind that patent is the guy that I've just told you the story that I've surely messed some things up. One more thing. Okay, so they were getting the sap from the bear trees to make the propolis, which is what they seal up the hive and they use as their medicine. Okay? All right, so that's one particular fungi that's having a problem because we're removing the way by which it, popu you know, it, it, it propagates itself. It kills a tree here and a tree there and a tree there and creates things called glades in the middle of forests, which are where forests renew themselves. See, forests are not supposed to stay static. They're supposed to ebb and flow. They're supposed to be big, vast pieces. You know, if a hundred acres of a forest just goes to, to death, but all of the forest around is still there, it's not a problem. And that's what happens in forests that are polycultures, not monocultures. You wipe out all of this pine with these, be these other beetles, right? With another type of fungus, a blue fungus. But only because all the trees that are there are pines, And the beetles don't infect the baby trees. They only affect the mature trees. It's time for the tree to go to the soil so the fungus can eat it. And since the tree won't come down because we artificially preserve its life, the fungus goes up to the tree and gets it and brings it down. Nature trying to correct the imbalance. Now, if we're creating that one imbalance that's taken this long to figure out by a guy who pretty much doesn't do anything but try to examine things like this, How many other things are we screwed up, maybe to the point of, of inability to fix them and put them back or even make them okay again? And the funny thing was, so he, tells us, he says, you know, it's always sitting in front of you. And he puts up a picture of a Winnie the Pooh book. And everybody's real serious at this point, and I'm, I'm trying not to laugh because I know what he's going to say. And it doesn't seem like anybody's getting there fast enough. Winnie the Pooh, sticking his paw into a tree to get honey from the bees. The truth has been in front of us for decades. I bet you read Winnie the Pooh or had Winnie the Pooh read to you as a child. Christopher Robin, etc. There it is. The symbiotic relationship of the bee, the tree, and the bear. Not to be broken, and yet we break it. And all this cascading events. That's just one 
example of why all these dying species are the symptom and we unfortunately see them as isolated problems. You know, we have degraded a third of the soil on the planet. A third. I have a link today to, to prove that out too. A third. A third of our soil that we grow our food in has been made fallow, inert. And if we let nature do it without our assistance, it takes a thousand years to build a few centimeters of soil. But yet we can build 10 inches of soil in 30 years or more. And not just in a garden. There's ways to do it. I'll talk about it in a bit. We have desertification going on like crazy. We have air. See, it's one thing when somebody says, well, that's the Sahara Desert. It's always been the Sahara Desert. Well, maybe. I don't know. Probably not. But in, in human existence, those shifting sands have probably, we didn't do that. I, I get that. But see, when you look at those like true deserts, they always have an edge, and that edge translates from true desert to scrub desert to kind of moving into the arroyos of like a western Texas environment into a scrub forest and a true forest, right? And that edge has this incredible diversity in it as it transitions from a, a desert like you see in a movie on TV to a life-filled desert to uh, not quite a desert anymore to a, you know, like a, a, a verge or a veld. To, to a forest, to a plains, to trees. It, it, it has all of those interactive edges where all the diversity of life is. That's where all these animals that are extinct that we didn't even know were here were before they died. We have no idea how many animals are extinct because of, of our actions and because of the cycles that our actions have put into place. So maybe it's not our direct action, but we took an action like the butterfly effect, and it caused a problem, and that caused a problem, and that caused a problem, and that had this thing happen, and then maybe threw a little gas on the fire here, and boom, and this thing over here just gone. And it was some fly that we don't think was important, but it maybe had some interaction that was really important that we never knew about, and we don't know where it's going from there. And, and, and with this... What has occurred is we have moved from the most arable, sustainable lands further and further out. And then we figured out, hey, with all this oil stuff and machines and pumps, we can go out and get land in the middle of this desert-like environment. But it's not quite desert yet. And because we can pump water, we can buy land cheap that no one's doing anything with and help feed the world. It sounds like a good idea. So we'll plow up this extremely fragile, but very nutrient-dense, very very fertile soil. Desert soil is very fertile. An edge of desert soil is extremely fertile. As the sands blow out of the desert and they hit the first bits of brush, the brush captures them, they drop, and they settle. It looks thin, but there's incredible amount. It grows stuff really, really good. So we'll just burn the cactus and the scrub oaks and everything else to the ground. We'll put a pump in, and we'll put a big, round irrigation thing in, and we'll turn it on and we can grow food, we can grow cotton, we can grow anything. And there's less pests out here. They can't live. The things that eat corn or that eat cotton don't tend to live in the middle of the desert because there's naturally no cotton there. So we'll have this little, like little uh, Goldilocks period 
where we have a lower pest pressure, all this extra nutrient, and all we have to do is drill a hole and pump water. Yay. Well, what happens then is we, we extract from that fragile environment to the point where it can't produce for us anymore. And then we go, I know. We'll just move it a couple miles. And we'll just move it a couple miles. This land's cheap. This is easy. But when we leave it behind, what was a stable scrub desert is now a true desert. Or what was a stable edge plains on a desert plateau is now a true desert. What was a stable scrub oak forest or sagebrush steppe environment is now a desert. And we're expanding the desert. And our solution, how can we grow food in the desert? Don't think you're getting it, guys. Right? I'm all for growing food in the desert if we actually are changing the desert back to what it used to be. And we can do that. There are reparative ways that we can farm in the desert, that we can grow food in the desert, and the desert can go back to what it was and actually be better than it was. But when we're saying, okay, we've already, we've already screwed this place up, how can we make a plant that tolerates the salt that we created so we can keep pumping water and make more salt? I don't think you're getting it. This is the world we live in today. And to, to compound this, The average person, and this is third world to first world, has never produced an ounce of food and doesn't know how. I mean, you think, well, you know, these indigenous cultures and they were... No, these, these cultures all over the world, India with more than a billion people, China with more than a billion people, have followed our lead and moved to the cities. And even in Africa where you have starving people in refugee camps, most of them have never planted a seed. Of close to 8 billion people, the vast majority of people on this planet who must eat every day have never grown a blade of grass, let alone a tomato, a potato, or an apple. And they have no idea how. It is the single biggest lacking skill that is fundamental to human existence. And we should be, in my belief, and this is Toby Hemingway's belief, we should be a horticultural people, not an agricultural people. We need agriculture, especially now. We got a long way to go before we can be a horticultural society. But for the vast majority of human existence, humans were not farmers and they were not just hunter-gatherers. They were what were called horticulturists. Um, plant care. So agriculture means to culture fields, not to culture food. Literally to culture the The, the, the dirt to your benefit where horticulture means to culture plants you notice that one's a little bit more in tune with being sustainable than the other one which one do you think it is because I'm culturing the dirt I don't care what I got to do I just want to make something grow there if I'm culturing plants I have to seed to the need of the plant and then the plant will seed to my need it's an interesting observation Toby had I don't want to offend anybody's religious um, beliefs here, but it was interesting that if you look by and large at people who are still around or that we know of their traditions who were horticultural people, the, the Native Americans that would go and, yes, burn several acres of forest, but leave the surrounding forest and then 
bring that burned area back into a, a food forest is what we would call it today. And our, our earlier explorers came here and they went, look at all these big trees. and all. They didn't understand what they were looking at. There's food systems that are just now beginning to fail that we didn't even know were food systems. Indigenous tribes of South, Southern California cultivating plants like the manzanito. It's like a little tiny apple plant. And there's still these trees that are alive 200 years, 300 years that we screwed everything up. And they're just now, the systems are beginning to fall apart. We didn't even know they were systems. So this was done in, in the, the semi-desert Southern California to the glorious green forests of New England and the Northeast through the Cumberland Mountains of Tennessee. Massive, massive chestnut trees. Huge groves underneath them. And we just thought, oh, this is natural. It was natural, but humans were part of that natural system. That's a horticultural society. And the people that live as horticultural people, in their traditions and in their customs, their deities are earth spirits. In other words, the spirits, the gods that they believe in, that they pray to, that derive their meaning and life from, are right here on earth with them. And agricultural people tend to have sky spirits that live in heaven or above or in the stars, separate from them, that they will one day be part of, that will save them, that will fix it. Where the people that have this, this horticultural culture believe that if we screw it up for ourselves, we screw it up for the spirits as well. You don't have to believe that. But I do think it's interesting to examine that dichotomy. You know, and Toby also pointed out, there's always been this dichotomy between the field people and the hill people. It's interesting that it doesn't, it doesn't seem to be the case as much in America. Though we can go look at Appalachia and see there is this separatist attitude. But I think in America we honor the farmer and we honor the mountain man. This is unique about our culture, and maybe it's something that can be used as the opportunity to fix this stuff, to understand there's a place for both if it's done properly. But I want to give you a sobering fact. You know, everybody that wants to sell you gold says, well, the Romans were fine until they went to fiat currency and everything. Let me tell you something. There is one commonality, and only one, other than they were people. That every civilization that's ever experienced collapse has in common. Every single one. Every civilization that's ever collapsed has been built on annual agriculture. Every single one. And the indigenous peoples that we have not yet screwed things up for, that are still around, that are still living the way they always did, have not built their societies on annual agriculture, even if annual agriculture is part of what they do. They are horticultural hunter-gatherer peoples. And that doesn't mean that we all should put on a loincloth and go live in a hut and spear fish and whatever and, and reduce the population to you know a, million, you know a billion people or whatever the earth can support with that level of unmanagement. But it does mean we can emulate those systems to fix the problem. Because I want to talk about, well, what is the solution to all this? Because the truth is, you're going to have a starving planet by 2050. Again, I'm not here to scare you and go, tomorrow morning the, the shelves will be empty. I mean, there, there's little events in between that could cause food shortages. We all know that. That's why we prep. 
But in the end, I mean, we're talking about things that cause ebbs and flows. There's always been famines and fe feasts and famines and feasts throughout history. But we're talking about a point where there's just not enough food for the number of people on the planet. And if that's what we're looking at, what, what are our solutions? Well, we can start in our backyards. Um, I agree with Mark Shepard when he says, you know, if we put gardens in every, every home in America, it's not enough to feed everybody. People are still going to need food, so we still need full-scale farm-level production. We just do it with perennial restoration agriculture. I believe that. But I, mean, you know, and, but I think when Mark says that, people don't understand. That doesn't mean for one second that he doesn't think that we should be doing it in the backyard. He thinks we should be doing it in every backyard. So instead of just taking Mark's word for it that wasn't enough or how much of a percentage it was, I decided to do a little math. Now, long ago, when the stimulus program came out, And uh, we were spending like $800 billion or something like that on crap that we've already spent the money on now and it's gone. And we all have, we have nothing to show for it, by the way. Just like I said, we would have nothing to show for it. I want you to tell me one thing that you can point to right now as an asset that this country has because of the stimulus program. It recovered the economy, whatever. Even if it did, what is left of $800 billion Dollars. Show me a physical asset that we have other than a freaking turtle tunnel and a guardrail around a lake that doesn't exist. What do we have? You know, at least when the FDR did the CCC, we built put like there's parks that people go camp in today. When 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 Eisenhower built the the interstate system, there's roads that you drive on today. What's left of the 800 billion? By the way, more than FDR and Eisenhower spent combined just in that one thing. Inflation adjusted, by the way. Just saying. Well, I, I wanted to do some math. So back then, this is long, long ago. I don't remember what episode. But I figured out that based on the fact that there were 110 million owner-occupied homes in America, that we could have put a four kilowatt solar system on every single one of them for $800 billion. And we probably could have done more because, gee, when you buy that many, the price tends to go down. And that was grid-tied and what have you, but that was something that would last for 25 to 50 years. I didn't say that I thought we should do it, but if we were going to spend $800 billion, that would be one example of a better investment. And, of course, I was called a socialist for saying that, for pointing out just the math behind the equation. Not, let's go do this, but this is how much money we're spending, and this is what could be done with it instead. Okay, But... Because of that, I've had that number in my head for a long time, 110 million homes in America. The average home in America is has, when you factor in people with 10 acres and 5 acres and 3 quarters of an acre, and, and in spite of all the people with a tenth, two tenths, has far more than a quarter of an acre, far more of a quarter of an acre. But I decided to use a quarter of an acre, a quarter of an acre of land that could be producing food. If we did that, we could put 27.5 million acres into food production. 27.5 million acres just in front and backyards. And you know what? You can't make it happen and I can't make it happen, but I can grow food on my quarter acre or my three acres, and so can you. And we should be... Not afraid of annuals, but we should be planting perennials. I, I think people get a misunderstanding because I talk so much about permaculture. So they think that's perennials, right? That's trees and bushes and vines and shrubs. Yes, it is. And I still plant tomatoes and peppers and melons, cucumbers, 
They grow fast. They produce a lot of food quickly. And they do great in a perennial polyculture. You don't have to plow. If you build a food forest and you go shove some cucumber seeds in the ground after the last danger of first frost, you have more cucumbers than you can use. It's just one example. As you're growing like supporting species like a legume tree, put beans up that sucker. Put squash up that thing. These beans and squash are, are staple plants of the Native Americans. And guess what? They grow best in forest edge environments, in filtered sun. That's why the squash plant has a leaf as big as your face. That's why bean plants have huge leaves. Because they're not supposed to grow in the middle of a field. They grow in dappled shade, for God's sakes. They were made to grow that way. That's why Native Americans, when they did open a space up, let them grow up a corn plant so that they were, they were like filtered through the stalks of the corn. Duh. That's why the squash went on the bottom below the beans and the corn. Because they could get by with the least amount of sun at all. So we put our squash plant out in the middle of a field and go, boy, it looks sad in the middle of the day. It doesn't belong there, dummy. So we can grow all of those things with these perennial systems. What if we decided, you know what we're going to do? We're just going to go on a campaign of, like, we need to feed people. Let's take all these city parks that are growing all these trees that can't produce shit, and let's just start popping in trees and bushes and shrubs and vines, and forget the annual agriculture there, and just stick stuff in there that, that feeds people. And consider it, since it's a public park, It's a public asset. When the pecans drop, you want to come pick them up, go ahead. Don't say it can't be done. We have plenty of parks here in Texas with, with pecans there. I, sometimes I look at the way they're growing and I think, some gorilla gardener did that. And they snuck it past the park people. And now that people are going there to pick them, they're afraid to cut them down because people will get pissed. Good. And I, I think that's what's going on some places. And I know some places around here where, like, companies in their highway easement sections, have planted pecans. And now these pecans are 25, 30 years old, and they're massive. And you see when the pecans are dropping, and right when they're about ready to drop, you see tons of people pulled over picking them up. We could be doing that in every, just city park, not state parks, not all kinds of private parks and everything, just city parks. What is the acreage of city parks that we could do this with? 1.5 million acres. Not county parks, not major cooperatives. These are just your city parks. 1.5 million acres. So right there, we could put almost 30 million acres into cultivation. Very easily. If city governments would get off their asses and stop making it hard. Putting an acre and a half food forest in Helena, Montana, a project I worked on up there, was like trying to please nine people that all wanted different things. It's ridiculous. Just replace the, the, the non-productive trees with productive trees. Just do that. Well, what if somebody takes all the food? Then somebody will eat. Then the person that's motivated enough to be part of the system gets to benefit from the system. That's, I mean, come on. When we start looking at how long these systems can last... Even grafted pecans, because some live much longer, but grafted high-level production pecans have an average productive life of 40 years. How many of us will be dead in 40 years? And that tree will still be dropping pecans to feed somebody. But it gets better. We can plant walnuts, black, Carpathian, etc. They're derivatives like heartnut. Average lifespan, 250 years. Let that sink into your bean for a second. 
250 years. I hunted a farm in Pennsylvania when I lived there for a few years uh, with a job that I had where I moved to the part where I, not my childhood, but I moved my whole family up there to take a job. I found this little farm. I went and shot a lot of groundhogs for these two old ladies that lived there, two old widows that kind of moved together onto one of the, the family farm. And uh, she said, if you want to shoot squirrels in squirrel season, just shoot on the porch and shoot them when they come under that walnut tree. And up to that point, you know, I hadn't really been around the house that much. I'd been out in the field shooting the groundhogs. And I looked at the tree, and I didn't even realize it was a walnut tree because it was so massive. It didn't. It was like trying to find an elephant in the bush. You should be able to see it, but it's so big you don't see it. I remember that was a walnut, a Carpathian walnut. It was so huge. And this lady was in her 80s. And I said, when was that planted? She said, I don't know, but it was before I was born. My grandfather planted it. That tree could have been 200 years old or close to it. Definitely 120, 130, 140 years old. And it was beautiful and still producing. But it gets better. Chestnuts, figs, and hazels can be productive for a thousand years or more. It's not that we don't have the tools to change these things. And, well, you know, they're trees, whatever. A chestnut can do anything from a food ingredient standpoint, even if you want processed foods, that corn and wheat and barley can. It can make anything from chips to bread to sweeteners all the stuff we probably shouldn't be eating, if you just still wanted to make it, you can do it with that. So can hazelnuts. Hazelnuts can produce oil that can be burned as diesel fuel. Well, you wouldn't want to take high-quality food oil and do that. Well, hazelnut oil is not the greatest food oil, really. And hazelnuts are like this thing that people say, well, it's a hazelnut. It looks like those things on Thanksgiving table. Well, see, when you start cultivating hazelnuts, you realize you have all these different sizes. And you have like the ones that are really big and good for doing things like eating out of the shell. And then you have ones that maybe are good for making like hazelnut pastes and stuff, that, like Nutella. Then you have some that really are good to just kind of grind and, and, and give to animals. Well, if you press the oil from them, it increases the protein yield to the animals. And you can also take the oil and use it as a cooking oil and then recycle it as a biodiesel. So you can use it twice. And then we can take all the trimmings from the hazels and all the shells from the hazels, and they're a fuel wood that's carbon neutral. So if you're worried about your carbon tax, how about stop worrying about carbon tax and start worrying about things that work? So whether you believe the carbon's a problem or not, the, 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 the concept that we could get two fuel yields out of a hazelnut that can live for a thousand years, or more, by the way, because the right way to grow hazels, you plant a whole shitload of them, and you break them into seven to eight sectors, and once they're in a full production, every year you cut one of those sectors flat to the ground. Flat to the ground, coppiced. And it gets rid of all of the blight issues and all types of diseases, and it recharges the plant. And if you coppice them in those rotations, they live longer and produce longer. And your total yields on a properly managed system are higher. We have these solutions. But we have to have a longer time horizon if we're going to implement them. 
The next thing. Right now, we spend an awful lot of resources, as vegans and vegetarians will point out, growing grain to feed to things like cows, chickens, pigs, ducks, geese, right? They're probably and, 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 and lamb, right? Lamb, we're pretty, I left lamb off the list because we're pretty good about grazing lambs. Do you know that cows eat grass? And that's what they're actually supposed to eat. Chickens eat grass in pasture. I've, I've seen them do it. They like it. Put a baby chick just old enough to finally be outside on the ground. The first thing it does is start pulling grass and eating it. Pigs love pasture. And they love fallen fruit and fallen nuts and all these extra parts that are diseased that we don't want for our food supply off all these trees. It makes the pigs not only happy, it fattens them up faster, and it finishes them to a higher quality product. Geese are little cows. They eat grass. Most of our livestock would be far healthier on grass. Here's the secret about grass. If you don't dig it up and ruin it, and you put an animal on it, and it eats it down to the ground, and you take the animal away and give it time, it comes back all by itself. Grass systems are perennial systems. I've seen research done where they dig up grasses on the Great Plains. They dig up a well-grown annual grass. And the roots go down about a foot to 18 inches. That's deep roots for an annual. Really deep. Drought resistant. And then a guy is standing in a tower. Holding up about a three foot piece of perennial grass. With roots running anywhere from nine to 16 feet long. Three foot of grass above the ground. 12, 14, 16 feet of root below the ground how long can that grass go without rain or which one of those two grasses can go without rain longer which one of them is sequestering more carbon if that's your bag meat is the most sustainable thing out there if it's managed properly if we went into perennial based overstory civil grass systems we can produce far more nutrition and more calories per acre than we do with annual farming. Solutions exist. Oh, but you want your rice, your barley, your wheat, and your corn. We can grow the shit out of that sustainably. And we need far less of it than we think we do. If we're not grinding up corn to make sugar, so that we can sweeten things that don't need sugar, if we're not subsidizing corn so we grow in ridiculous amounts, and the same could be said for soybeans, we need far less of it. If we're not growing corn that's food to turn it into fuel, which is stupid, we need far less of it. And we can grow corn, barley, rye, and wheat sustainably. And small distributed plots of much higher quality and much higher nutritional value and get higher yields per acre than they do with mass plantings. It can be done. And since we're going to have a whole shitload of people unemployed due to automation might be something they could contribute to with part-time work. It's a little bit fulfilling. I'm just saying. And you know what? An old guy with a long beard in Japan taught us how to do it. If you want to know, read his book, One Straw Revolution. So I'm not going to go any further. I'm just saying it can be done and it is done. And then just the miracle that is nature. If we harness it, I want you to think about this. An amaranth seed, if you've never seen one, is about the size, maybe a little smaller, half the size of a sesame seed on your sesame seed bun. 
in three to four months, that seed grows into a plant. When a stalk is big around as a, as a large man's forearm, not a girly man, a large man, like my forearm, or bigger, eight to ten feet tall. And it produces a pound of those seeds, which are a higher quality nutrition than any of the grains that we've come to depend on, like rye and wheat and barley. And can do anything those grains can do with higher protein and more nutrient content. And from that tiny seed, this huge amount of biomass has all these edible leaves that have more protein than many beans do that can be fed to livestock, who will shit it out and we can put it back on the ground as fertilizer. And that big giant woody stalk can go straight to the ground and rot and feed fungi and improve ecosystems. And that all happens from a seed that's a microgram in size in four months. I know some of you, like when I do the permaculture shows, like I don't really see today as a permaculture show. I see this as an informational show just about like what's going on. Like, this is not my thing. It should be. Did you eat today? Are you going to eat tomorrow? Are you sure you're going to eat tomorrow? This is the most critical crisis threatening humankind right now. Because we are willing to destroy our planet to feed our children. What do you think about that? We are willing to destroy our planet 30 years from now. We're pretty sure we'll be dead. I'm not saying we will, but if you knew that, well, 30 years from now, we'll probably all be dead if we keep doing this. Your kid's sitting in front of you, and it, your kid looks like one of those kids on the TV. And you have the chance to feed them. You let them die? See, it's the same type of delusional thinking that people have about cancer. One in three people will get cancer. Okay, I, I believe that. Statistics say that. One of them could be you. Oh, it won't be me. Keep doing this shit, we can destroy our planet. Ah, that's true. So if you keep doing this shit, you're contributing to it. Ah. This is where we are in the timeline of human existence. We are on the precipice of our greatest achievement or our greatest failure. We have the ability to change everything for the better with actually very little to be sacrificed if we'll stop focusing on just money. Just money just now. And actually think about somebody other than ourselves and some time other than this moment or the next quarterly report. And the shifts are beginning to happen, and that's that's good news. We can also grow food in the desert sustainably. I have two links for you on that today if you go to the show notes. One is Jeff Lawton's Greening the Desert, Part 1 and Part 2, which is what got me into this. I looked at growing food in the Dead Sea in the salt flats of Jordan and went, I have no excuse. So there's some rock here. So there's some clay here. Whatever. It's green out there. Get off, my, get off your ass, Jack, and produce some food. Remember your roots. Your, your grandfather taught you this stuff. And you thought he was awesome for it. I remember thinking my grandfather was a genius because his garden was so amazing. And I realized now we're working at levels my grandfather could not have even fathomed. But I believe if whatever form his spirit is in now, he can see the work that I'm doing. I don't think I know he's proud of it. I don't know if he can see it. I, I I have a different view about spirituality than many of you do. 
But I, I know that if he can see it, that he's proud of it. And my hope is that my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren, will look back and feel that way about me and be damn proud of it. And also say, we're working with things now that my grandfather, my great-grandfather, could never even have conceived of. Because imagine if we took our innovation, our spirit of, of can-get-shit-done, and applied it to this world for real, without any bullshit, what we could do. When I asked Jeff Lawton about Monsanto and GMOs, his response was, well, I rather would enjoy having their budget to do good with. What if we took that type of thinking into actually doing the real long-term work for mankind? Will we? I guess it depends. I guess it depends on how real we decide this thing is. But we can do it. We can, if we can grow food in deserts, sustainably, by the way, if we can go to a place where you get one inch of rain a year and with proper earthworks, irrigate, but we irrigate no more than the water we get from the sky so that we have a, 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 an evening between the aquifer and the harvest of water. And we can do it anywhere. And we can do it sustainably. What excuse do we have for not doing it in Iowa if the Bedouins are doing it in Saudi Arabia? Seriously, think about that for a second. Bedouin tribal people working with one volunteer from the United States are doing this in the, the tip of the Arabian Peninsula in the shifting sands and making it work. And we can't pull it off in Iowa or Oklahoma, or Nebraska. Seriously, we should be ashamed. As a people, we should be ashamed that we're continuing to use an extraction model to feed ourselves today at the expense of our children tomorrow. And then, like, the biggest thing we have going for us is water actually stores in the earth better than it does in dams and tanks and pools. And the technology to infiltrate it into the land is so simple and so well understood. Swales and key line and key line swales and water infiltration systems. And for God's sakes, digging one foot diameter, one foot deep holes and filling them with cow shit. It's called Zy farming. And one guy did it to stop the advancement of the desert all by himself on about 300 acres. And it worked just great until government showed up, cut his land in half, put a road through it, took the other half and built things on it, and put a road through the middle of his father's grave. Yay, state. If you want to know more about that, look up a video called The Man Who Stopped the Desert. Yakuba Sakadoa is one of my many heroes. It's interesting to me that As a child, my heroes were people like astronauts and fighter pilots. And as a young man coming up in business, my heroes were people that made money, like Mark Cuban. And today, all of my heroes are people that grow food. I think you call that growing the hell up. I'm just saying. My heroes today are Ron Finley, Jeff Lawton. You know, my, my, my heroes are Joel Salatin. 
These, these are the people that I, I want to emulate, that I want to be like. You know, my heroes today are guys like I just met, like Curtis Stone, that's feeding 30 families with, with, with his food from a quarter of an acre. And he doesn't even own the quarter of an acre. It's in other people's backyards. Yeah, it's called growing the hell up, guys. It's about time the whole damn country, the whole damn world did it. If we know the solution and refuse to take it, we deserve the results. That's how I feel. Anyway, I need to finish up because I do have an interview coming up here. That little sound you heard was a reminder. Here's the truth, though. We don't even really know what is possible. We really don't. It is very possible, maybe even probable, that in the not-too-distant future... My ancestors will look back at the way we were doing things, the way we were doing them right right now, and think that was a good start. Look where we are now. I wish they were here to see what we're doing. It's just my hope, my goal, that I leave behind a place that gives them that opportunity. That's why I want to change everything, guys. That's why I want to... I don't want to tear down the public education system. I don't want to fix it. I want to render it obsolete. Obsolete. I just want us to go out there and say, here's 200 ways to learn, all of which for some people are better than the existing system. Go do it. And have people just go, you know what? That's better. I'm just going to go do that. You can't because bye-bye. Bye-bye. I'm out of here. And I want to see us do that in all walks of life. I don't want to tear apart the pharmaceutical industry. I, I think they do some great things, and there's some drugs that we really need that do some real good, and I'd like them to stay, but all this other peripheral crap that they're producing just to make money, I want it to go away, but I don't want to regulate it out of existence because I know that doesn't work. I want to start feeding people real freaking food so they don't get sick in the damn first place. Or then when they do get sick, yes, people are like, well, people have always gotten sick. Yes, but they didn't get sick the way they do today. Freaking autoimmune diseases, what? After God knows how many million years of human existence, our bodies just decided one day, you know what I think I'm going to do today? I'm going to start attacking myself for no, no reason at all. No, I want to feed people so the people that get sick get sick for legitimate reasons. Not because they're sick because of a medicine, so they need another medicine to alter that sickness. I don't want people sick from stress. I don't want people sick from eating garbage and toxins and poisons. We're finite individuals as physical beings. We will die. We will get sick, but we don't need to be sick at the level that we are. I don't want people dying of heart attacks when they're 30 because they're so freaking fat. I don't want kids shoving food into their face when they're five that will have them near death by 25. I'm sick of it. And I'm sick of a society that accepts it. And I don't have any solution other than get the F off your ass and go do it. Go grow an herb and a windowsill if that's all you can do. But do something. Buy from a local producer. Find more of them. Tell people the poison that's in their food. Never quit, never give up, never surrender, F them. That's how I feel when I look at all of this. Because I see the solutions are so dramatically simple. That only a people paralyzed in fear and divided by rage and anger and hatred 
could ever look at so many things that are so easy to fix and fail to do it. Turn off the TV. Pick up a shovel. Feed yourself. Feed your children. Feed your community. Put something in the ground that will outlive you while you have the time, while you have the chance. Don't even worry about whether you own the ground or not. Frankly, I am sick and tired of people going, well, I plant trees, but I'm not going to own this for much longer. I don't care. A society grows great when old men plant trees under whose shade they know they shall never sit. Well, if you want a society to truly grow great, young men need to do that too. Plant trees. Because someday somebody that you care about, that you may never know, but you'll care about in spirit, they'll be important to you, might depend on it. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, and we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better